but the Israelites are doing that week after week after week after week. And to me, that totally helps me to understand the attitude that we're going to see that they have in this story. And yet, through all of that, God always took care of them. He always provided for them. He always protected them. But here's what happens in Numbers 21 where we get to this part where it tells us that then the people of Israel set off from Mount Hor using the road to the, uh, to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey and they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? See, that's camping, right? They complained. There's nothing to eat here, nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. Now, this is not the first time they've complained. In, in the whole book of Numbers and in Exodus, we see over and over again that they're always questioning God. They're always doubting God. They're trying to, you know, they're, they're doubting his motives toward them, and they're doubting his care and his love for them. And they totally forgot the horrible existence that they lived in before. It's like, oh, oh my gosh, steak again tonight? Can you believe it? God provided that manna for them to eat, and, and they totally forgot. And, and I think we can see ourselves in this situation a little bit, can't we? Because we've been blessed with so much and given so much, but we still complain and question God and doubt Him and don't trust Him the next time things get a little difficult. And so I want you to, to get in the, the shoes of the Israelites here a little bit. But I guess that God felt like enough was enough. And so in the next two verses, um, here's what happens. In verses 6 and 7, it says, this one's easier for me to read. So the Lord sent poisonous uh, snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. And then the people came to Moses and cried out, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. Now, so this is God's response. Why did he do this? Why did he send these poisonous snakes to them? Well, he's trying to get their attention to correct that lousy, that ungrateful attitude that they have and bring them back to reality a little bit. And you see what happens. So before the snakes, they're going, God, why have you done this? What's wrong with you? Don't you care about us? Why did you do this to me? And now after this, they're going, oh, my gosh, we've sinned. You know, why did we speak against God? We were so wrong to do that. God, we need your help. And so, you know, I thought, you know, in light of what they said there, we, we want to think for a second about this definition of sin. Sin is trusting and acting on your own opinions and feelings rather than trusting and acting on God's truth. And Numbers 21 is a great illustration of that because the people were acting on their own opinions, on their own feelings, on their own experiences, and judging God on the basis of that. And so they, they, the result was that they really got upset with God. They didn't trust Him, and they didn't trust the promises that He made. They didn't remember the things that He'd done for them. And so this is God's corrective discipline. God loved them. God had this great destiny in mind for them. He had this future that He wanted to bring them into, and He wanted them to experience. He loved them. But they needed a wake-up call, right? And we, we see it. It looks like it worked. They prayed. They prayed to God, uh, asked Moses to pray for God, to God. And Moses comes back in verses 8, and he reports what's going on. The Lord told Moses, make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. And all who are bitten will live, 
if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. Now, Moses prays. God does something, I think, a little unusual here, a little interesting at least. The people said, the people had come to Moses, right? They said, ask God to take away the snakes. God didn't do that. God didn't take away the snakes. He didn't prevent the people from being bitten by the snakes. But instead, he provided a way for the people to be healed from the venom. And and the way that he provided was for this bronze replica of a snake to be made, like a bronze statue of a snake erected on a pole for everybody to see. And all you had to do was look at that snake on the pole, and then you were healed. So that's what happened. In Numbers chapter 21, let's think together about what that means uh, a little bit. First of all, as we look at the story, it's interesting because God's instructions to Moses were kind of confusing. As we look back at it, we we get confused maybe for two reasons. And I I wonder if the Israelites were confused for these same reasons. Because first of all, snakes were bad. And secondly, so were idols. And so it took simple faith for the Israelites to obey. You know, the first occurrence of a serpent in the whole Bible is right at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3 where the serpent appears to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and they're deceived by this serpent and sin enters into the whole world and the, and the whole world's been messed up ever since. So that, so that kind of sets the tone for how serpents are viewed in Scripture. Now, snakes are not evil. Now, I I don't know. To you, maybe they seem to be evil. I don't want to touch one. I don't want one going around my neck. My daughter has a snake, by the way, her pet, but she keeps it behind glass. So whenever I'm home, I feel safe, right, from the evil of the snake. No, snakes are not evil. God created them. But biblically, and actually in lots of, of human literature, they're symbolic of evil and of Satan and of sin. And so when you realize that, you know, think how odd is it that God had Moses make a bronze replica of a snake as the instrument by which he was going to deliver his people. That's very curious. And then the second kind of strange thing about it is if you look at the Ten Commandments that God gave these people through Moses, it says don't make any idols. Don't make a graven image. And so that seems kind of odd too that God would cause his deliverance to come through this graven image. And so why snakes? Why a physical object? Uh, There's a lot of answers to that, but I think one answer is that that God just, he's just asking his people to trust him. He's going to make provision. They just needed to trust him with that. Yeah, maybe there were questions. Maybe it was confusing. And God says, I just want you to, to trust me. Now, there's a fine line there because a lot of unscrupulous religious leaders in history have used this kind of argument as a tactic to control and manipulate people. Leaders who will say, look, you just have to have faith. Uh, it doesn't matter if it makes sense or not. Just, just have to have faith. And, and you don't, don't think about it too much. Oh, just put it on a shelf. Don't deal with it. There's probably an answer out there somewhere. Just trust me with that. Blind faith is easily manipulated. But what's going on here in Numbers 21 and what we're trying to represent as Christ followers is not blind faith. Blind faith is, is just believe even when there's no real evidence. Or even believe even against the evidence. But 
in Numbers chapter 21, God had a long track record of being faithful to Israel. They'd seen plenty of evidence. There'd be lots and lots of instances of him taking care of them, like that manna that they were complaining about. God's provision in the wilderness where there was no food, he gave them miraculously a divine provision of food every single morning. So every day they're reminded God is taking care of us. God is faithful to us. All these people had seen God defeat the army of the Egyptians at the Red Sea. And many other things that they had observed and experienced in their own lives that should have convinced them that God was going to take care of them. Even when it was confusing. And so you know when something gets confusing in the Christian life. Or you read something in the Bible that you don't know if it's in character with what you thought you understood about God or not. You know, we're never going to say to you, uh, just, just mindlessly trust me. Just believe, just put it on a shelf. Instead, we're going to say, look, uh, what I'm going to invite you to do is to look at what God has already done. To look at what you know is real. What, what God has, the track record that God has in your life. To look at the evidence in the Bible. To look at the evidence of creation. To look at the evidence of his own interactions with you. And how he's taken care of and faithful to you. To look at what God has done that does make sense. And not to, not to just not deal with the stuff that doesn't, but to evaluate the things that are confusing in light of the things that you already know for sure are real and true. And so that's how we build our faith. We build our faith on God's faithful track record just the way that God was asking the Israelites to trust him in, back in the book of Numbers. Now what I want to do next is to connect the dots now from Numbers 21 into the New Testament We're going to look at John chapter 3, and we're going to see that this bronze snake foreshadowed God's plan for saving humanity, that Jesus became sin for those bitten by sin, so to speak, so that we would be rescued by looking to the cross. So in John chapter 3, what happens there is this, this guy named Nicodemus comes to meet with Jesus. Nicodemus is a leader of Judaism. He's highly educated. He's very influential. He's very devout as, as a member of the Jewish leadership. And he's seen from a distance, he's kind of been watching the whole scene. He's seen Jesus do some amazing things and say some amazing things, his miracles and healings and so forth. And so Nicodemus feels like he has to know more. In his, his personal integrity demanded he has to go and find out more. So he comes to Jesus to talk for a personal interview with him. Now as a leader in Israel, Nicodemus would clearly have been familiar with the story from Numbers 21. But in this conversation, Jesus is going to show him this this story in a completely new light and show him the incredible significance of this story in ways that Nicodemus, for all of his religion, had missed. And so at the very end of the conversation, Jesus summarizes the whole thing for him. He summarizes for Nicodemus what he's missed. In John chapter 3, he gets down to verse 16, and he says, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This This is probably the most famous verse in the whole Bible. 
because it summarizes the Bible's central message. It shows us there God's love for humanity. It shows us that God in His love was willing to sacrifice His own Son for us. It shows us the threat to humanity that we might perish eternally. That means be separated from God forever and under His judgment. And it shows us what God has done to provide a way for salvation, that we just have to believe in His Son. But to understand this more fully, we need to actually go back one verse to look at the context here. If we go back one verse to verse 15, this is where Numbers comes into play. As Moses was lifted up, uh, lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. So Jesus, he says, Nicodemus, you remember that story? Remember that story about Moses and the bronze serpent and the snakes and all that? Yeah, I know you do. Well, guess what, Nicodemus? That, that's really about me. That story totally foreshadows me, Jesus says. Because here's what we learned from that, that that snake gave people physical life if they just looked to it. And likewise, Jesus gives eternal life when he's lifted up for those who look to him. So this is a, that the snake on the pole is a direct foreshadowing of the cross. When Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, you remember, if you visualize that, if you've seen the movies or whatever, you visualize Jesus carries this cross up to the hill of execution, and they lay it out flat on the ground and put him on it. So he's laid out flat, arms spread. They nail him to the cross. And then, and then the soldiers pick the cross up and hoist it vertically so Jesus is lifted up above the whole crowd. Everybody could see him above the crowd. He says, when I'm lifted up, just like, see, because that snake was lifted up on a pole, those who looked at it believing were healed. And because Jesus is lifted up on the cross, then he says, everyone who believes in me will have eternal life. Now, the Apostle Paul really got this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he states it in very simple terms in verse 21. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to become sin himself, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So Paul says, God made him to become sin for us. The people who were bitten by the snake in the Old Testament had a way to not die. And likewise, people who are bitten by sin, so to speak, have a way not to die eternally, by looking to Jesus as an act of faith. So he says, because Christ, who never sinned, became sin for us. Now, again, you put those two things, those two phrases side by side. He's not saying that Jesus, when he became sin, that he became sinful. He never sinned. He's not saying that he did wicked things or that he ever, Jesus never violated God's purpose. He never sinned. And so what does it mean when it says he became sin? Well, it means that he took our sin upon himself, that he absorbed our sin and all the ways that we've gone away from God, he absorbed that into his own being, and so that he bore on his shoulders before God all the ways that we've gone our own way and followed our own feelings instead of what God says and what God wanted. Now, theologically, this is called the doctrine of imputation. To impute something means to charge something to the account of someone else. And so, 
what it's saying is that our sin is imputed to Christ through the cross. So he pays our debt of sin before God. And in this magnificent, great exchange, then his perfect righteousness then is imputed to us so that we can stand before God as righteous, not in our own righteousness, not in, in what we've done. We don't take out our list and say, God, look, at here's all my good works and here's all the things. No, God says, I don't care about that. But we stand before God as righteous only because Christ's perfection is then imputed to us. His perfection is added to our account, you could say. It's like this. If, it's like if you go out to dinner and you decide to pick up the bill for the whole group. Some of you are going like, what? Is that a thing? You know? No, what happens when you do that is you have just imputed somebody else's meal, the cost of that meal to your credit card, right? Or like one time I was driving through some fast food restaurant, driving through the driving lane, and, and I saw ahead of me one person paid for the meal uh, of the order of the person in the car behind them. I thought, dang, I'm in the wrong spot in the line, you know. I was too far back. But see, one, that's where, where one person's meal or one family's meal was paid for it got imputed to somebody else's credit card without any effort or any expense on their part. And that's what Christ has done for us. And so, to the person who's been raised in a religious environment, that, that, seems, that can be kind of hard to grasp or kind of hard to accept sometimes because we're used to thinking that God gives us what we earn, that God just gives us what we're worthy of. And it's like, it's like a wage, you know, you, you punch the clock, you end the day, boom, on, the, on your time card it says you've got so many hours and here's, this, here's your pay scale and you're going to get what you've earned. And we think that's how God treats us. And so this idea that our sin is paid for somebody el- by somebody else and all I have to do is believe, that's tough for some people to accept. But that's the whole point of that bronze snake. It couldn't be any clearer than in that illustration Moses said simply, look up at the snake. Boom, that's it. Moses didn't say, look, you need to walk around the camp three times and then look at the snake. He didn't say, you, you got to do some ritual, you got to do some ordinance. Moses didn't say, look, I, you need to do seven good deeds and come back and report to me. And you better hurry up because you're about to die of the snake bite, right? No, because the fact is there was nothing a person in ancient Israel could possibly do to overcome that fatal venom that was coursing through their veins. There's nothing they could do themselves about that. And likewise, there's nothing that we can do on our own to cure ourselves from the venom of sin. And so, just as the Israelites simply had to look at that figure on the pole... All we have to do is look at that figure on the cross to receive God's cure for our sin and to receive his righteousness accredited to our account. And it says that we do that by faith, by trusting in what he's done because that's how good and how merciful and how gracious God is. When you think about this, this is such joyful news. This is amazing, right? This is so amazing. Think about how the Israelites felt one minute you're dying of a snake bite, and the very next minute you look to that pole in faith and you're healed. Wow! Wouldn't you just be filled with overwhelming joy about that? You'd go, oh my gosh, what just happened? This is so crazy, so good. Well, if you're a Christian and you've been 
rescued from an even greater peril than that. One minute you're spiritually sick because of sin and you're under God's holy and righteous judgment that we deserve. And the next minute you're looking to the cross and you're forgiven. You're made new and your life begins to be transformed. Look at how Psalm 32 says it. I love this. When I discovered this psalm in in studying this message, he says, Oh, what a joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven. (sighs) whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt. We always have reason to be joyful if you're a Christian. Yeah, things get tough in life, man. Things can really get tough in life. But we have this bigger picture. We always have reason for joy. And I hope you haven't grown jaded about the cross And I hope that idea of what Jesus has done for you has not ever grown stale for you. And it still has the power to stir your heart when you contemplate it. Now one more thing about this snake. The snake shows up one more time in the the Bible. In the Old Testament this time again, it's in 2 Kings chapter 18. And and we see then um, later in history... The snake on the pole becomes an idol, and that reminds us that God's message can get corrupted in future generations. Not just in future generations, but in future phases of our own life, right? And so, fast forward a few hundred years from Numbers, fast forward to 2 Kings, the the reign of King Hezekiah. It's about halfway between Numbers 21 and Genesis chapter, I mean, uh, uh, John chapter 3 on the timeline. So a few hundred years after Numbers, after Moses, a few hundred years before Christ, and this king Hezekiah becomes king, and he sets about cleaning house among God's people. So 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4 says, Hezekiah removed the pagan shrines. He smashed the sacred pillars, cut down the Asherah poles. He broke up the bronze serpent that Moses had made because the people of Israel had been offering sacrifices to it, the bronze serpent was called Nehushtan. First of all, this shows how far the Israelites had slipped away from God, that they're worshiping these emblems of foreign gods. And surprise, we didn't expect to see this, there's that bronze serpent that, Jesus, that, that Moses had made. And they've kept it. I can understand why they would keep it all these years, because really it should have been in the museum of God's greatness. They should have enshrined it as a symbol of everything God had done for them in the past. But instead they gave it a name and they started worshiping it. Do we do that? You ever take something that God did in your life to bless you or to deliver you that God used and you start to put that ahead of God or you start to look to that thing instead of God uh, to take care of you? Well, religion could be like that when we make it about us and we start to rely on some religious system to help us or to save us instead of relying on God. Church can be like that. Church is a good thing. It's God's idea. God provided for it. God uses it in our lives. But but for some some of us, it can become more important than God. The church, the church culture, everything about it. There's a pastor at a church in town, and he was talking about how he grew up in a very strict, legalistic church, super strict, where there was a meeting every night, an activity every night, and again, God can use those events for sure. But in that circle where he was, church became the most important thing. And if, and if you didn't show up, 
every night at these meetings, and people would assume that you're not really following God. It, came, it became about church, not about God. People can play that role in our lives, right? Maybe God used some preacher or some author or some ministry in your life to reach you for Jesus, and that, that person's work or that ministry's work was so pivotal in your life that, that now somehow you, you have like become a groupie, and that leader can do no wrong in your sight. And you hang on every word that, that that human person says, regardless of whether it matches up with God's word or not. You see, taking that human leader and maybe put them in a place that only God deserves. So I want to encourage you to think about this a little bit more. There's some implications here for us. And one great way to do that, we don't have time to do that right now, today, because in a minute I have to go back to Leighton and, and, and teach the second service there, right? But one way, great way to follow up and to process these ideas is to get in a small group. That's why you see the display in the lobby, that all the different groups that are being offered here. Because then you can get together with other people and process what the Bible's saying and, and really think through what it means for me in my life. And not just, it's not just then uh, theoretical anymore, so, for example, one of the discussion questions for this week's topic, it says, compare the attitude of the people in Numbers 21 versus in Hezekiah's day. That's pretty thought-provoking. Like, what happened between those two generations? And then the follow-up, it says, what are some of the idols that Christians worship today? What a great conversation that will be to have. I encourage you to get connect with a small group where you can do that. Now, honestly, I don't know what you know about Jesus, or I don't really know, like, what you thought about the cross and how that's been presented to you in the past. Maybe you've been attending Alpine for some time, and you know what? We're really glad you're here, but I, I want to make sure you don't miss this basic, simple message today. You and I have a sin problem. That's where it starts because all of us have followed our own opinions and our own feelings instead of doing it what God says and doing what God wants. And because of that, we need forgiveness. We need deliverance. And the first step then in getting right with God is to say, yeah, God, you're right about that. I admit it. I admit my sin. I admit my rebellion. I admit my self-sufficiency. Yeah, I get it, God. You're right. And in admitting that, then I, I, I realized then that God made provision for that. And all I have to do, the next thing, I just look to the cross. And I put my trust in what Jesus did there for me. And when he took my sin and your sin upon himself. See, Jesus alone is enough. You don't need anything else. You can be right with God. You can be forgiven of your sin. You can be given a whole new life as you entrust your life and your eternity into his hands. Will you consider that today? Let's pray together. And I want to invite you to pray along with me and to insert yourself and insert your own thoughts into this prayer as we go. Right? And so I'm encouraging you to pray. If, if this is the prayer of your heart, to, to pray in your heart along with me in this way. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I need you. <clears throat> I need you, Jesus, because you know my story and you know my failures and you know the secret things in my life that nobody else knows. And so I want to thank you for dying on the cross to pay for my sin. And for bearing my sin on your own shoulders. Thank you. Thank you. And I do trust you. And I do believe in you today and in what you've done for me. And I receive today, I receive your sacrifice as a free gift credited to my account.
even though I don't deserve it. And I now entrust my life and my eternity to you from this moment forward. I belong to you. I'm following you wherever you lead. And I ask you not only to forgive my sins, but to work within me to change my life and make me the new person that you created me to be. Amen.